almost over. So In the blink things. of an eye. <laughs> You're 30. I'm 30. You're officially 30. I'm so obsessed with it. <gasps> it's been a great first week of being 30, That's I have good. to say. That's um, good. How was your day at the zoo? We had the best day. We had perfect weather. It was warm enough that you didn't need a coat. But it was cold enough that you could be in like a cute, I wore like a cute sweater and my jean jacket. And the animals are then out and about. They were out. They were being so great. They were so active. They sell beer at the zoo now. Mm -hmm. So we got Oktoberfest and walked around the zoo. A delight. It was, and like all the leaves were perfect and it was like bright blue sky. Like I, it literally could not have been a better day. It was a zoo day from a movie. Yeah. And in the morning, we had gone on a hike in Loch Raven. So by the end of our birthday, we had gotten 20,000 steps. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) What an exercise. And my legs hurt a lot the next day. Yeah, but you're starting the year right. You're starting it right. I am. It was great. And dinner was so good. And we had our first Big Mac. That was the other major thing. Yes, yes. Casey and I have never had Big Macs before. I think so we we're brought like, that up on the show before. That, that's I think wild. So. So that's we're, wild. So we're on our way home, and I was like, we got to do it. And he was like, okay. You should have topped off the night and watched Independence Day <sighs> and just really done it. I should have. Um, but anyways, we're not here to talk about my birthday. No. We're here to talk about history. On the rocks. With Katie. And Allie. This is a podcast where we talk about famous women in history. We talk about good women and bad women and fictional women and non-fictional women from all times and places because women have nuance. But keep in mind we're drinking the entire time. And we are not historians. No. We do a little Googling, podcasting, YouTubing, taking advice from you guys and Mm -hmm. taking requests from you guys. But we are certainly not historians. No. We've never heard of these women we did tonight. No, absolutely not. I actually had heard of mine. (laughs) But But that's only because she's in my field. That's unfair. Yeah. It's unfair. Um, But yeah, so we're going to get into it. We're going to have a good time. And if we make mistakes, please feel free to email us because Uh. that does happen on an amateur podcast. And it helps us out. We like it. We get to learn more. Our listeners get to learn more. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much. Um, But before we get into the stories, we know that you are busy. So busy. You are building the 12 foot skeleton from Home Depot. There are so many parts. <laughs> it's in your front yard right now. Yeah. All your neighbors are watching. They're like, are they really doing it? And yeah. you're like, yeah, I'm doing it. You're getting the tibia and the fibula mixed up. It's so <laughs> Everybody hard. does it. Um, your phalanges are all over the place. I'm a clavicle messer <laughs> up, yeah. honestly. I don't know where it goes. So while you piece together your skeleton, even though it is after Halloween, technically, you're still not done. Um, <laughs> you don't want to take a break and look at your phone because you're going to lose track of the bones. So we're going to describe these ladies for you. We're going to get a little physical, physical. Allie, who are you doing and what does she look like? I'm doing a woman named Susan Blow, and she is literally the prototype for like a white woman with brown hair who's buttoned up and Victoria aired out. Like she <laughs> is exactly what you would picture. Um, long Victorian dresses, um, corseted waist, buttons up the front, you know, hair out of her face. Um, in her older years, she's like a little heavier. Like you can tell there's like two types of pictures of her. One's from when she's very young, one from mm-hmm. when she's like aged a little bit. Um, but she's always surrounded by children. Ooh, okay. Susan Blow and the babies. <laughs> Um, so my woman probably looks really similar, but just like a hundred years before, uh, <laughs> we don't officially know what Martha Ballard looked like, but we know that she was a middle-aged white woman living in Maine during the revolutionary war. 
In reenactments, she is often portrayed by sturdy, dark-haired women who can handle their own. Martha most likely would have worn simple clothing consisting of a corset and a big skirt. Um, So, like, not quite pilgrim. So, like, she's not, like, in Puritan clothes. Mm -hmm. She was more just in, like, regular clothing. Um, But nothing that she couldn't move around um, easily, though. Wait, but nothing that she couldn't around easily and though because she had a lot to do oh okay so it's more like um colonial style clothing yes. whereas mine is like the hundred years after that yes okay yeah because i because i know it's like in the new england era area so i wanted people to think more i want people to think like more like colonial williamsburg mm-hmm. not thanksgiving dinner got it not got pil- it not pilgrim right okay sure 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 <laughs> totally so anyways do you want to know what you're drinking? I do. It looks delightful. Okay. This one, uh, first, Megan Kate is the person <gasps> who Megan. Uh, requested. This is Megan with the EA yes. that follows us, who's and wonderful, Megan. followed us for a very long time. <laughs> um, and I'm dedicating this drink to all the teachers out there. It is called the one, two, three. Look at me. <laughs> Cheers. Cheers. Oh, I didn't say what it was. Oh. We'll, drink, we'll drink it first. We'll drink it first. We'll drink it first. Mm. Mm. so bubbly it is so it's fresh raspberries vodka a lemon twist cranberry bitters and mm. champagne we've never used cranberry bitters before what an exciting new ingredient i we know can play with. <laughs> i bought them fresh and i just wanted the drink to look a little bit pink the the lemon twist is supposed to look like a pencil and then the raspberries and the little pink drink pinkish drink is supposed to look like the eraser i will say the pink is that perfect shade of yeah. eraser eraser pink so good job erasers for big mistakes <laughs> what do you know about susan blow nothing uh she's a teacher Mm-hmm. in the 1800s yeah um but that's all i know good <laughs> so you did a really good job listening to the first three minutes of this show yes. <laughs> all right i'm gonna tell you all about susan blow but first i want to give you a little bit about where i found my sources obviously wikipedia and they actually had a sizable article on her not okay. the hugest i've seen but it was pretty thorough um I watched a YouTube video called Susan Blow Living St. Louis. I listened to a podcast called Voice of Missouri. And um, I looked at the Susan Blow historical website. So she is a very um, famed and respected educator in uh, the field in American education. And she's from St. Louis? She is. Yeah, she's (sighs) from Missouri. She um, moved to St. Louis when she was six. Okay, Mm -hmm. cool. But lived her, like, educator years in St. Louis. Okay, See, now every time I think of St. Louis, I think of Jenna Fisher, from uh-huh. who played Pam on The Office, sure. and because her and Phyllis are both from St. Louis, mm. and I think it's really cute. They would go and watch like the Cardinals games in their trailer together. Yeah. <laughs> that is really and cute. And then all the Boston boys would be in their trailer watching those games together. Boo, Red Sox. <laughs> don't hate us. We don't yeah. mind the Red Sox, really. I don't really care. I mean, they're in my division, so I have to not like them, yeah. but still. <laughs> okay. So Susan is the oldest of nine children, I believe six living. I saw like two different reports on this. She was born June 7th, 1843 in Missouri. And 1843 is right at like the crinkling point for the Civil War. This Uh is like when things are about to go down. Her dad is Henry Taylor Blow. He's a pretty important guy. He was a U.S. senator from the one of the two from Missouri. And an international representative to Brazil and Venezuela. 
So he's pretty important in government. He's also a businessman. He was the president of the Iron Mountain Railroad. And her dad also founded a Presbyterian church in St. Louis. Mm. So he's got his hands in so many pots. Mm -hmm. Like, he's a big, important guy. Her mom is Minerva Grimsley Blow. And Minerva was the daughter of a prominent manufacturer and local politician. All that to say, she grew up in relative comfort. Okay. She's got it made also her mom's got a really good name yes minerva <laughs> grimsley blow how good um the family's deep deeply religious the privilege is there they're of german heritage but she is just surrounded by the wealth of powerful men i mean her grandfather was the guy who owned dred scott of the famous like um supreme court dred oh, scott wow. case so dred scott was a slave um, who got sold to her grandfather. Her grandfather was like a, a nice guy and was like, hey, yes, I own you, but um, I'll say I own you and you can get married and have children. When her grandfather died, he was sold away to someone else and it split up the family. <gasps> and this went all the way to the Supreme Court. Whoa. And Dred Scott never gained his freedom. He lost mm. his case in the Supreme Terrible. Court. However, it ignited a lot of people toward the Civil War. Mm -hmm. They were like, this man has been married with children and living in relative freedom yeah. for decades. Mm -hmm. Like, this is stupid. So mm. that her her grandfather was involved in like that kind of kindness, I believe. Oh, like nice. um. With Dred Scott. Okay. So uh, she and her family, before she was the age of six, lived on the Mississippi Riverfront in Missouri. But then there was this terrible fire in Mississippi in her town. And it killed 7,000 people. Mm. Like the whole town burned down. Oh, my God. So her family relocated to St. Louis. It's okay. safer. It's a big city. Pretty uh -huh. well established. She received her education from her parents, various governesses, private tutors, and even schools her parents highly valued education for their mm. sons and their daughters and would not settle for less for their girls this was quite unpopular in households of this time um but not only was it unpopular for girls many families had their kids still working on farms or in factories there weren't like labor laws right so a lot of people if they weren't well to do were like well okay my kid can go to school for a couple of years but then they have to stop and work right they believed in education so much not only for their own children but for other children that her dad contributed funds to build public schools and there are some named after him oh, in wow. st louis very cool at eight years old susan was enrolled in william mccarthy school in new orleans I'm not sure why they were in Louisiana. I hmm. couldn't really find that. I'm sure it had something to do with her dad's job that they were oh, traveling. Yeah. But she went to school in Louisiana for two years. Then her and her sister Nellie, when they were in teenage years, like 14 to 16, they went to New York. Mm. And they went to school there for a couple of years. But unfortunately, the outbreak of the Civil War happens. And she has to go home to St. Louis for high school. Um. Which high school proper, I don't know if that was like a thing for girls, like public high school proper. Probably not at this point. Mm -hmm. um, so she goes home. Just And also to preface it, she's in Missouri, but her family is pro-union and anti-slavery. Okay. So ding, That's ding, ding. Good. good thing. Good. Good, Susan. <laughs> thank you. While she was there, because education was grim during the war, she tutored her little brothers and sisters and she taught Sunday school. And she also studied all on her own in her family's library of all her dad's books. She wanted to learn as much as she could. 
people were like you're way too bookish this is crazy and she was like this isn't crazy and just joined a group of thinkers in st louis so that she could talk more about her ideas she was like having her own little saloons Mm -hmm. you know like that weren't really called saloons at the time (laughs) she then met and fell in love with this soldier named colonel william cole at about 20 years old but her parents found him unsuitable he was discharged from the military for medical reasons. I couldn't find out more about this. But I think maybe he was just lower class mm-hmm. and they were like top tier. Mm-hmm. So her dad took her to D.C. to try to try to introduce her to military men that were more to his liking. And it just didn't work out. And actually, yeah. Susan never got married. Huh. So I just I just think like she fell for this one guy, but just maybe wasn't that into relationships. I'm not sure. Or maybe it just never worked out for her. Yeah. You know, um. So she ends up never getting married. But right around the end of the Civil War, when Ulysses S. Grant becomes president, he tells Henry, I need you to go and do your international America stuff in Brazil, please. So Henry picks up and goes, her dad picks up and goes to Brazil in 1869 for international affairs. And he decides he's going to hire Susan to come along as his secretary. Oh, very cool. So now she's going to Brazil. She learns Portuguese in less than six months. What? That's a very hard language. Yeah, learns an entire language. And because of that, she becomes, like, really important to this mission with her dad with trade communications between Brazil and the United States. Whoa. Super smart person. She then goes to Europe with her mom and sisters. (sighs) They're just going to go to Europe. And she goes there and she's like, you know what, while I'm here, I'm going to study the philosophies of many major, you know, famous thinkers of this area. She's also studying American transcendentalism while in Europe, which we talked about. Who was that dad we hated towards the oh, end of the last Louisa season? May Alcosta. Yes. Oh, my yes. gosh. Because yeah, she was also, was yeah, he, he, he believed in this as well, but he was not good at it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, she was just learning about this. Okay. While studying. She came across the philosophies of a German idealist, very famous in the educational field, Friedrich Froebel. And um, he believed in something that we now know as kindergarten, a garden where children can grow. Mm-hmm. He thought that the cognitive development of young minds was critical. And the way that you could make this happen is by making them learn, but through play. Mm. You trick them into learning by playing. She visited one of these classrooms, modeled after his ideas. She watched them teach and mold young minds, and she brought the idea Mm. back to America. So she's so inspired. She's back in the United States and specifically has these ideas in her hometown of St. Louis. A few things we should know here. One, she's not the only one who tried to bring these ideas back. Like Friedrich Froebel is very famous, Mm -hmm. but the others had tried to bring the kindergarten method into the private settings in the U.S., and it just fizzled out pretty quickly. Okay. Two, St. Louis is going to give her a little bit of pushback because they are skeptical of Germany right now. So St. Louis was a very old city. It was founded in the 1700s, even though it's a little bit out west. Uh Uh-huh. Has a lot of citizens from the South. It was a slave state because Mm -hmm. of the Missouri Compromise. But shortly after the Civil War, a whole bunch of people from Europe immigrated and settled in Missouri. Something like 160,000 people. And 60,000 of them were German. Oh, So it was kind of like a little bit of a bias towards German people um, because the Germans were super anti-slavery in a slavery state. Oh, okay. And Germans were like, this is... This is not cool. Like, we should not treat people like that. Yeah. 
So it got a little pushback that Friedrich Froebel was a German guy, Uh and this is a German philosophy. Yeah. She comes home, all these ideas, so exciting, telling her family. And her dad's like, I'll set up. I will sponsor and pay for a private school for you to do this. But my girl did what we should all do and said, I bet we can better serve the people if we make it a public school. Yes. 100%. Side note, I'm a huge (laughs) proponent of public schools. (laughs) Huge, huge proponent of public schools. Now, she, again, she's not the only person who brought this to America. So she was like, I bet there's other women, like, I could learn from about this. So she travels to New York to go to normal school there to be officially trained as a teacher by one of Froebel's devotees in the science of teaching little minds, which we now know as early childhood education. So early childhood education is the years before like grade school. I think sometimes now we include first grade. It's like pre-K, kindergarten, first grade, and then grade school or primary school is like two to five. Huh. So early childhood education is like a separate degree because yeah. the brains are different yeah. for those mm-hmm. kids. Um, and she was there in New York studying about this for a year. In 1873, Susan returns to St. Louis and opens the nation's first public kindergarten in the whole country. That's crazy. She has two assistants, Mary Timberlake and Cynthia Dozer. She directed and taught the kindergarten classes consisting of about 42 students. Not only did she use her own family money to pay for all of the tools and Mm. things for the kindergarten, but she forewent her own pay to make sure that this Mm. could work. Obviously, that comes with privilege, but she definitely was not expecting to get paid for this. Wow. She also recruited over 150 women to volunteer to work at Blow's kindergarten. Sounds like room moms. <laughs> yes, they were. They were the first room moms. In the classes, students learned games and songs that Susan had transla- translated from German to English. They played with shaped blocks and paper and clay and tried weaving and molding to improve dexterity. They grew seeds in outdoor gardens. They learned Bible stories and also myths and legends and folklores. They're like doing all the things we do in kindergarten now. Yeah. That's so cool, too, because I feel like this is probably the first time when, like, kids would go away and then mm-hmm. come home and then the parents could be like what did you do today yeah. like I just feel like it's nice when your kids do go to school because I think it starts conversations with them you know I'm not a parent so I don't no, know it does but. and I think the interesting thing is that at this point first grade through 12th grade are set up like factories the way mm-hmm. they are now your desks are in a row mm-hmm. you get a paper you finish the paper you turn the paper in um Montessori was obviously doing some really fun stuff yeah. uh-huh. but she Elizabeth or um Susan Blow had the same idea that she got from Froebel that like learning should be joyful it should be fun and yeah. these kids can learn by playing which mm-hmm. is what she was really trying to do mm. so Susan started with two experimental schools one for traditional middle class students and one for immigrant students who were huh. showing up Um, And both had equal amounts of success for the Mm. students attending kindergarten. What we learned is little minds grow better when they play games. Little minds grow better when they interact with other little minds. Little minds that attend kindergarten are better adjusted for primary school. Little minds are the most important and impressionable minds. If little minds learn to love learning when they're little, they grow into big minds that love (laughs) to love learning when they're older. And the amount a little mind grows before the age of five is the most it will ever grow. Wow. But it impacts your future 
significantly if you start them young. And finally, and the thing I think most people don't understand about early childhood education teachers is that it's a science. You are a cognitive like teacher. You understand the science of teaching. You're not just like, today, you know, we're going to learn our letters. Like you have a checklist. Like, okay, this kid has learned how to tie their shoes. This mm-hmm. kid is walking, alternating up and down the steps. This like, there's a list of things you have to watch. This kid is learning how to operate scissors for dexterity. Like, Your brain is literally learning one second at a time. Yeah. Well, I think that's so cool, too, because, like, I feel like when you are, like, a young woman growing up, it's, like, elementary school teacher is always thrown at you if you are just, like, a generally, like, nice young girl. Right. Because it's, like, they're, like, oh, like, you would be fun with kids. And it's, like, okay, but, like. There is more to it. Right. It's like <laughs> I have my like people had their master's degree in teaching yeah. little babies. Yeah. Like it's not just like, oh, yeah, I'm just going to fly by the seat of my pants. Today. Yeah. Like <laughs> it's not like I showed up and be like, here, I play want. with the doll. Yeah. <laughs> no, there are things happening. Mm. Um, and I actually think that Abbott Elementary did a really good job with that when like the principal who like mm-hmm. is crazy, like had to substitute teach. And she was like oh, like, this is actually, like, difficult and, like, a real job. Right. Like, she didn't really respect it before, Mm -hmm. you know? But, like, I don't know. I'm very impressed by educators because, and it's all, because it's also, like, you have to be routine, but also there has to be something new every day. Yes. Like, that seems hard to me. (laughs) (laughs) It's like you're all, you're, it's like I'm on stage every day, but with no recognition. Yeah. (laughs) It's like I'm performing, but for 30 idiots that are going to give me one-star reviews on Yelp. (laughs) And it's it's fine because it's like what I love to do, but yeah. it's very funny. Like especially, I think early childhood education, people are like, "Oh, what'd you do? Finger paint today? You blow mm-hmm. a couple noses?" And mm-hmm. it's like, "No, that's not what I do for a living." Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Like I'm a real person. <laughs> so her classes, in short, were much more joyful than the upper grades, and the experiment was considered a huge success. While most classrooms were plain. Hers was full of colors and plants and toys and blocks and shapes and balls. And you didn't only learn that, but you learned how to keep yourself clean and how to Mm. eat healthy and how to exercise. Um, And I am sorry to tell you this. Yes, I do understand that some people want to spend more time with their child when they're a kid and they're like, they can wait an extra year before kindergarten. But what I am telling you is unless you're following like a homeschool thing with fidelity, then your kid is missing out. Mm -hmm. You can stand by the sink and measure with a measuring cup, Mm -hmm. but you can send them to two days of a preschool program. It doesn't have to be every day. Like it's just about learning to learn with other people other than a mom. Yeah. And I feel like there's a lot of good social skills that come out of like, you know, being forced to interact with other kids. Yeah. Like, I don't know. It Again, is important. I'm to, not a parent. It, but. <laughs> it is important to learn with your parent, like to go sit outside and count the little leaves that you picked up and mm-hmm. to garden and to cook. But there is like you're first of all, you're on 24 hours a day, so you never get a break. Yeah. And I think that's a refreshing time for mothers, especially mm-hmm. if they want to go back to work. And then second of all like you really do have to study the science of little minds and some moms do Mm -hmm. some moms do that and they homeschool their whole lives and they do incredible jobs yeah but I just like I think that some people just think like oh kindergarten's not worth it yeah it's like actually it is yeah (laughs) like it actually is something that it's worth trying to do yeah um so three years her kindergarten system had up to 50 teachers and over a thousand students wow 
And you should also know that 72% of the children entering kindergarten were non-English speakers because of the huge immigrant population in Missouri. By 1883, every public school in St. Louis had a kindergarten. By 1883! That's not even the 1900s, and they had this. Part of this was due to William Torrey Harris, the superintendent of St. Louis schools, who saw the value in what Susan was doing. Mm. He believed in her and that he also thought the greatest educational concern in public school was kids kept dropping out to go work. Mm -hmm. And he thought if we can get kids to love learning when they're little, we'll decrease our dropout rate and have more educated citizens. He was initially against a public program. He thought it should be private and kind of for the wealthy. But she put together a presentation, said that she would teach it and direct it if he let it be public. And she got the school board on her side. Mm. And he agreed. He let her do it. What a great guy. Thank goodness. A trusting, trusting superintendent. We need more of those. We like those. When I feel like it's all those little moments throughout history when people really stuck to their guns mm-hmm. and were like, no, you're not going to privatize this. That really made a difference in the long run. Right. You know, it does for mm-hmm. sure. So in 1874, Susan o- opens a training program to accommodate the in-demand kindergarten teacher. They spent mornings volunteering in kindergarten classes, student teaching, mm. and afternoons and weekends studying cognition and teaching methods. Only 11 years after opening her training school, though, Susan had to withdraw from teaching due to Graves' disease. (gasps) Also, side note, she was operating without pay this whole time. Oh, my She went 11 years without getting paid. 11 years. (laughs) Just living by the seat of her pants and her daddy's money, I guess. Yeah. (laughs) So she retires and moves to Boston with Laura Fisher. Hmm. <laughs> I don't know if she ever got married or not. I'm just presuming. Um, she moved there to direct the kindergarten program in Boston Public Schools. Oh, very cool. So Susan moved with her. While there, she wrote a book on Dante and five books on Froebel's theories. This is all in retirement. She also helped found an international kindergarten union and held a three-year appointment to the Teachers College of Columbia University. So she's teaching in university in the 1800s. That's very cool. She moves to New York in the mid-1890s to be close to one of her sisters and lectures all over the country on early childhood education, only stopping one month before her death. Mm. Susan passed away in March 1916 in New York City. Most references say March 26th, but her tombstone in St. Louis is March 27th, so maybe it was midnight. Who knows? (laughs) A newspaper of the time said, a great commander is gone, but the soldiers will go marching on. (gasps) The soldiers. The little baby teachers. You're the soldiers, the baby Hmm. teachers. That's so cute. People founded leagues in her name. Susan E. Blow, Froigel League. They set Froigel. They set up funds in her name. A public school and a street are named after her in mm. St. Louis. Um, and just like the first kindergarten was opened in the U.S. To, oh, she has a star on the St. Louis Walk of Fame. <laughs> She's St. Like, Louis Walk of yeah, Fame? Yeah, there is. That's cool. Gateway to the West, baby. Why um, doesn't Baltimore have one? I don't know. We need <laughs> Excuse me, Jada Pinkett Smith? <laughs> Tupac? <laughs> who else? Cisco? <laughs> who else would be on it? John Waters. There we go. Right. There we, we go. We got some people. We got some people. We got some people. People from Baltimore are excellent. Okay. 
So the first kindergarten was opened in the U.S. in 1873. But I will have you know that kindergartens were not obligatory on a federal level until 2002. So you, wow. you could, like in Maryland, it was required five, five years old to 18 years old. Okay. Or it was five to 16 for a while. Now it's five to 18. Okay. Um, but many states, you could withhold your child from kindergarten and they could start at six. Okay. In first grade. Okay. So that is now federally required since 2002. Our battle right now, though, is about universal pre-K. Florida, Oklahoma, Vermont, and Washington, D.C. have universal pre-K. And a lot of the problem is that we live in two parent households now. Mm -hmm. And uh, daycare is absurdly expensive. Yeah. And universal pre-K would help out families an exorb like an exorbitant amount. Yeah, like kids would still have to do like before and after care at those daycares, so they mm-hmm. wouldn't be losing clients. Mm-hmm. Um, but universal pre-K is something in Maryland. You have to make under a certain amount of money to be admitted to pre-K. Really? Yes. Yeah, so you, not every child gets pre-K. Wow. It's only if your family makes under a certain amount of money total. Wow. And then you can put your child on a waiting list. Or, like, my niece got into pre-K um, in, like, an allied pre-K situation, which means that she is a typically abled child learning with non-typically abled children. Huh. So she got in because she was going to be an ally in oh. the classroom. Okay. So you can get your kid, like, certified in that as well. Interesting. But that's, like, the only way to get in. I've never in. heard about that. Yeah. Okay. Um, or if the community doesn't have enough people that, like, you then – parents they like up the ante for how much you can make to get in you get on a waiting list so maryland's complicated so complicated um from this story what i want teachers to feel comforted about is that i want you to know that every battle we're facing now has been faced before us and we've won and we can educate children of documented and undocumented immigrants who don't speak the language with success and we can teach through national epidemics and pandemics with success and we can teach children who have seen a world at war over and over again and we can teach children who are surrounded by political unrest because these little babies were doing it in kindergarten and they turned out just fine yeah and that was in the 1800s our trials are no different now than they were then yeah and we're doing it just fine uh one of her quotes was if we can make children love intellectual effort we shall prolong habits of study beyond school years and i think we've done that with things like podcasts people our age love learning we love the history channel and the discovery channel and reading books and saying how many books we've read like Mm -hmm. i think she's right yeah we've learned we've taught people to love learning and not like the grade yeah i totally agree that's Ah. susan blow's story Interesting. I love when you get to do educators because, like, this is a world that I am so unfamiliar with. You She's know? amazing. That's She's amazing. Very cool. She's like a founding member of like your child going to school today. Like, you owe it to her. Yeah. For what she did. Crazy. <laughs> amazing. <All right. laughs> new story. New story. New story. Crazy drink ahead. <laughs> We're back with a fant a cooked cocktail. 
We've cooked <laughs> this, this evening. I can't wait. Um, okay. Can you please so tell me all about this? I what an will. insane thing. <laughs> this is called Call the Midwife. Sure. And I decided in this 16th season, it was time to try a colonial flip. This I'm is a, so nervous. It's a very famous kind of cocktail. And it was a really, it was a common drink in the 18, 1700s during the Revolutionary War because people had a lot of rum. And they wanted more things to do with it. And they would make this in a big batch. So it, it's a whole egg, an ounce and a half of rum, an ounce of cream of coconut. So that obviously I added um, an ounce of half and half, a few dashes of orange bitters and uh, um, a half tablespoon of brown sugar or a whole tablespoon, whatever you're pleased. So you, I whisked that all together, and then in a pan, I boiled four to six ounces, so a half a beer of your favorite beer. So it's like a lager, or I chose a Marzen-style beer. Um, and when it starts to froth, you add the whisked ingredients, and you stir it well. So you have to froth it or whisk it until everything is heated through. And you garnish with nutmeg. I am really excited. <laughs> it is. This is going to be Cheers. a treat. I think it tastes good. It's interesting. I do not like that at all. <laughs> <laughs> it tastes like maybe like the egg that maybe it needs more like brandy. I feel like it could use some yeah, maybe brandy. brandy. Could use some brandy. Or maybe I chose the wrong beer. I don't know. I also think the texture is wrong. Like I wish it feels like, <laughs> you know what it feels like? It feels like the broth in like an egg drop soup. Yes, that <laughs> like, is what it feels I'm like. I'm just going to imagine I'm having ramen. So I'm not going to take one more sip of that. Miss <laughs> um, Krista, tell us if you can do it right. I just, I had so much, because I was thinking about it in my head, like you said, because I wasn't going to put the egg in it. I was like, I don't want to do that. Right. But then I was like, I have to face my fears. Because when we did it with the egg white, I really liked those results. I so love good. an egg white cocktail. So good. This I don't care for. Well, they had to boil things in the 1800s. and I mean, 1700s, colonial times. Yeah. Otherwise, they'd die from bacteria. And also, I think if it was smooth, like like it's supposed to be, it would like have if turned we out whipped better. It, maybe. Yeah. Okay. So I don't know. So maybe I just wasn't whisking hard enough. Because um, I know Beyond Reproach did a flip. And I feel like theirs turned out better. We're going to have to ask a professional bartender to make us one. And also, like, originally you're supposed to do, like, a red hot poker and, like, mix it with that. But I was like, Whoa. I'm not going to get a red hot poker. Oh, my God. We could have just turned on the pellet <laughs> stove and stuck it. Remember when we tried to? Never mind. Okay. Never mind. So. <laughs> of course you remember. If okay. yours doesn't curdle, enjoy. Ours curdled for sure. Yeah. Well, we brought bonus wine just in case. Um, so that we can talk about Martha. Okay. What do you know about Martha Ballard? I know nothing about Martha Ballard. I have never heard of her before at all. At all. Perfect. <laughs> um, I know only so what you said. Um, <laughs> so my sources for the story are Wikipedia, a PBS website. And I got like little bits of information from just like a whole host of other websites, honestly. Um, so. And Rebecca Denauer. Oh, and Rebecca Denauer requested. So. Sorry, your drink is disgusting, um, but cheers to you. Well, it's your second girl of the season. You'll get over it. That's true. And also, we love you. Yeah. And thank you for commenting <laughs> that I remembered you were from Cincinnati. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> After I said you were from Chicago. Not, not to call you out by first and last name and city. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> but anyways, okay. So let's get into it. Martha Moore was born in Oxford, which is a province of Massachusetts, on February 9th, 1735, to Elijah Moore and Dorothy Learned Moore. We don't know too much about her family, but we do know that she has strong ties to the medical community. Ooh. Her uncle, Abijah Moore, and brother-in-law, Stephen Barton, were both physicians. And her sister's granddaughter, so Martha's great-niece, would go on to become none other than Clara Barton, who, of course, founded the Red Cross. Whoa, we haven't done her yet, have we? I don't think so. We're upsetting the yeah, world order. Crazy. The world order has been upset. <laughs> so... Yeah, Claire Barton related. Absolutely insane. Cool. Martha married Ephraim Ballard, a land surveyor, in 1754. The couple had nine children between 1756 and 1779, but unfortunately lost three of them uh, to diphtheria. Wow, that's like the exact same as the family I did. I know. Weird. In 1777, the family moved to Kennebec Valley um, to a little town called Hollowell in Maine when her husband found work there. And it was in this town that Martha established herself as an expert herbalist and midwife. Women, of course, could not become doctors during this time. So midwifery and plant-based medicine were, their cl- were just like the closest they could get. And back when Martha was practicing, there just really wasn't another option. But of course, the relationship between doctors and midwives uh, changed over the years because, you know, these women did not have any official medical training. So when births moved from the home to the hospital, there was a stark rift between the two fields. And this rift was also largely based on race. Black women were not welcome in hospitals for quite some time. And when they did go, they were treated terribly. So they relied on midwives for a bit longer. And then what ended up happening is that black midwives were seen as dirty, irresponsible, and superstitious, which, of course, was heavily based in racism. Mm. But then in the 70s, midwives started to come back into fashion in the U.S., and they're still really common in other countries. Um, But here, only 12% of all births are attended by a midwife. Um, Now, I am a huge fan of midwives. I think that they are great, but I also like the fact that if something goes terribly wrong, like we do have doctors who can perform emergency surgeries to save lives. Sure. I have a question. Uh-huh. What is the difference between a midlife and a doula? Or is so, it the same? No, they're not the same. So a doula is really there just to provide like emotional support. Um, they are not really medically trained. So a midwife, like especially now, like is trained to like catch the baby. Doulas are not trained to catch the baby. Got it. Um, and they are just like a little bit more medically trained. I say. Mm-hmm. Um, and doulas are more there to be like your spokesperson. Spokesperson. Got exactly. it. Exactly. And so that being said, I would like to see more doulas and midwives being accepted into the healthcare community so that people giving birth can have a little bit more agency. Um, I did a lot of research into this in college, and I just think that the solution is to integrate the traditional medicine and the new medicine. I really do. Right. Because I think part of the problem is that women who are in the throes of labor have no one to kind of go to bat for them and say like, hey, that wasn't what we discussed. Yeah, I think, you know? <laughs> I think too, like um, a lot of women create a birth plan. Mm-hmm. And in the moment, there's so much going on for that woman, not only like physical pain. I mean, she might have an epidural, might not, but Like, there's so much emotional things happening. There's things happening with a partner if you have one, maybe Mm -hmm. not with a partner. And then pieces of your birth plan don't get followed. Yeah. Sometimes, even if a doula is Mm -hmm. in the room. 
Yeah. Um, and that could be for a medical reason. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that often women uh, or doctors don't necessarily explain that to women because you're in so much bliss after you give birth. They're not yeah. going to be like, hey, there was like a really scary rupture in the umbilical uh-huh. cord and we didn't know what to do. So we had to go against your birth plan. Right. And I just don't think that hospitals give the space to doctors to deliver that news. So yeah. then I think a lot of women are mad at doctors. Mm-hmm. And want to do something without doctors. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Like, I don't know the solution of how to merge these fields appropriately. Yeah. I mean, I don't either. But I do do, do wish that women had a little bit more, I don't know, kind of, I wish they had a spokesperson. Like, because I did my whole senior research paper on doulas. And I think that they are such great, like, advocates in hospitals for people. And they're also, because one of the other things I did not really think about was, they're also the person that's going to enforce your rules on like if your great aunt shows up to the hospital and wants to come see the baby, the doula is then in charge of like being like, you cannot come in. Like (laughs) you were not allowed to be in this room right now. Yeah. Which I also love, you know, just having someone else there who can get their hands dirty a little Mm -hmm. bit and like have those tough conversations without you being the villain mm -hmm. as a new mother. Mm -hmm. Sure. That's so important. Um, no, it's just a little ditty about birth and midwives. Cause I also think the, moving away from midwives and that being based in a lot of racism can like also tell us a bit about our current situation right especially women of color giving birth and having very high maternal death rates yeah like risk factor Um, is so much higher for women of color yeah it's insane so anyways but the whole story is not about that but we are talking about a very prominent midwife so i did want to talk just a little bit about it (laughs) but now back to our main story So all babies right now are born at home with the aid of midwives. And although they don't have any official medical training, what they did have was familial knowledge. This was the type of knowledge that was passed down from generation to generation. And Martha learned it from her mothers and aunts. Now, we don't know a ton about her early life, but we do know a great deal about her later years because she kept a very detailed diary starting when she was 50 years old. In 1785, She's 50, she's living in Maine, and she still had five of her nine children alive and at home, plus a, nie- a niece named Barthenia. The, they ranged in age from 7 to 31 years old, and of course she is working as a midwife and a healer. Her diary, which is nearly 1,400 pages, mm-hmm, acts as a daily log, starting with the date, the weather, and, and just kind of moving on to simple things like what she fed her family, and then business things like how much she charged for her services which babies lived or died, and of course, what was going on in the town. This might seem like useless information, and some people who have read the diary have called it boring and questioned its significance. But we here at Herster on the Rocks Mm -hmm. know what having 27 years worth of information on a woman's daily life directly from her is worth. History has largely been recorded and written by men, so sometimes it's nice to have a woman's perspective because women tended to write about everyone in the community, not just the important men. Yes. <laughs> and about like culture and activities mm-hmm. and gossip and all the things that go right over men's little heads. Yep. And she also wrote about people who may not have been recorded otherwise. Members of the community who were not recorded in deeds or church records. So like there are all these people that are only mentioned in her diary for one reason or another, you know? And It just, I love that she sees everyone, not just the people that history would deem as significant members of society. Mm -hmm. 
And if a woman did write, it may have been to letter, like letters to friends or like quick entries. But Martha just recorded so much. And since she made her own ink and her own quills from her geese, she was never short on writing tools. And I feel like that also helped because she never had to take a break. Mm. She always had her supplies on hand. Hey, I have a question. You mm-hmm. journal every day, correct? Mm-hmm. How long have you been doing that? Almost two years. Do you keep it in a, like a spiral notebook? I have, I get these cute little notebooks from Target. Mm-hmm. I only got one brand for a while and now I have kind of switched it up to another brand, but they, they're about the same size. It's lined, so I do front and back pages, but it's not like a huge one. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not like a, like a notebook you would use for school. It's more like just like a little, kind of like a moleskin journal. Or like, yeah, an agenda page type yeah. size. Um, but it is like, I mean three good pages you mm-hmm. know and some days it can take me 20 minutes some days it takes me an hour you know it kind of mm-hmm. just depends on how I'm feeling okay. but, but yeah. yeah but I journal every day you know like obviously there are some days where mm-hmm. I don't get miss, to it yeah. you know but, but yeah but pretty much every day for yeah in December it'll be two years yeah producer journals every morning yeah that's I don't I do journal it. at all mm-hmm. I have found it really helps i bet i bet i mean i'm sure it's like doing yoga for your brain and emotions and also sometimes you're like i'm back here again talking about this Mm. you know because like when you actually write it down you're like i'm sick of writing these same words over and over why am i so frustrated by this yeah Yeah. and like it's helped me see patterns Mm -hmm. in my own behavior that then i can like really try because like then like every next morning i'm checking back in and, you know, I'm like, okay, like, are you feeling better today? Like, how did this work? Like, you know, like, I don't know. It's just, it has done wonders for me really understanding my behavior and how it can change. And also I give myself more credit for getting back on track when I slip up. Mm. Cause then I look at my diary and I'm like, oh, it felt like I like totally went off the rails and ruined my life. But it was two days. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Like it's not as bad as I think it is in my head. Now, how would you feel if 300 years from now somebody was reading all these pages? Terrible. Yeah. Okay. I would hate that. Okay. I would hate so, it so sorry, much. Martha. Yeah, so sorry. Um, <laughs> I would hate that. But the other thing that makes her diary significant is that she was writing about everyday life during a time of immense social change. America was just a year out of the Revolutionary War. Our population was just under 4 million and there was a major economic depression while we were trying to figure out life without Great Britain. By the end of her diary, things were a little more settled and the U.S. population had grown to about 10 million. That was in 27 years. So what was going on in those years and what was life like in this sleepy New England town of Hollowell, Maine? Well, we know that Martha was an integral part of her community. She had a web of interpersonal relationship relationships consisting of endless rounds of visits to households for miles around she delivered babies she was the town mortician she was a healer um, obviously dealing in herbal remedies and we know that martha did not usually collect money on the spot but recorded debts debts for future collections so this would be either in cash goods or services and all of this created networks of mutual obligation Networks that spawned lingering loyalties and kept people in the town bound together. Her recordings tell us a story of a small local economy based on the work of women. They paid each other in money, but they also exchanged, you know, goods for services. Sometimes she was paid cash for delivering a baby. Sometimes she was given 40 yards of fabric, which I think is so 
fascinating. It's a barter system. It is. And I feel like because, again, we have we get most of our stories from the men at the top. They're not really recording where their wives got the fabric from. Mm. They're not really recording like where their candles come from. You know what I'm saying? Like we're not really understanding a small society the way it functions and the way that women are causing it to function. And I really think that that's cool. It is cool. Diary. Because we're expe- women were expected to have their household presented a specific way mm-hmm. and to have all these things. And men might think that their career and their money is what's getting it. But women didn't trade in money. No. They didn't have <laughs> bank accounts. They didn't yeah. have money. They yeah. didn't trade in their husband's purse. Exactly. You know, they traded in their skills. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And it's interesting because you would think a small New England town, um, you know, church would be the central thing keeping people together. But for Martha's diary, the trading system was the main commonality because they could have different religious beliefs. But like ultimately you had to get your candlesticks and you had to get your, you know, whatever from someone. You had to have someone birth your babies. You Mm -hmm. know, it's very interesting to me that like the town was pretty split religiously, but like they all had to do business with each other. Um, so obviously everyone in the town was religious, but the town had kind of started to fracture a bit into smaller religious sects, which we did see a lot in the new England era during this time. Um, a lot of funny cults coming about as we talked about, uh, I I love a cult. I love a cult. (laughs) Um, Martha herself, Always thanked God for delivering healthy babies, but she was not a regular attender of church. Uh Uh-oh, she's a witch. (laughs) She appeared to have more of a private relationship with religion, and some historians wonder if this was to better serve her midwifery business. Martha may not have wanted to seem too tied down to one belief system because it could alienate people. She wanted to remain a common friend to all. Like a good medical professional, she wanted to treat everyone the same, and she wanted to treat them well. And sometimes that meant doing it for free. She sometimes did not charge poor neighbors who couldn't afford it, including freed black families, considering it just a part of her obligation as a neighbor. But with high infant mortality rates, sometimes the babies did not survive. Sure. So, of course, along with recording all the babies born healthy, she recorded all the babies who'd passed away. And she recorded the people who had gotten sick in the town, the treatment she had given them, what worked and what didn't. So because of her diary... We have a much better understanding of the many ways in which childbirth could go wrong because she wasn't just saying they died. She would say, like, came back, came out with umbilical cord wrapped around the neck. And like, this is exactly what happened. So, like, we know how many babies did that, how many babies survived from that. You know, it's just like we're getting so much information. She's creating a data chart. Yeah. And she we also know, like, what illnesses were spreading and how quickly they're moving around the community. And she also recorded some of the conflicts she had with the local doctors. (laughs) She accused one male doctor, new to the practice, of excessively using the narcotic laudanum and being too aggressive with his instruments. After the death of one of the doctor's infant patients, she called him a poor, unfortunate man. Oh, Ursula, I'm (laughs) sorry. she's got opinions. Yeah. Martha also recorded some other terrible things that happened in the town, such as the rape of a young woman named Rebecca Foster. So Rebecca Foster was the wife of the new town minister, Isaac Foster. And as I said, the town was a little split on religion at this point, And many people in the town did not like Isaac due to his unorthodox preaching style and his religious history. I think he had switched denominations a couple times. Unfortunately, many men in the town 
decided to take their frustration out on his wife. Rebecca was cursed at in the streets. Men threw rocks at her and were threatening to rape her. She went to Martha and confided in her about all of this, but there simply was not much either of these women could do about it at the time. And of course, these threats eventually became reality, and a group of men, including a local judge, attacked and raped Rebecca in her own home. Rebecca and Isaac requested these men, especially the judge, be brought to trial, and Martha testified on Rebecca's behalf, saying that she had been scared of exactly this for some time now. But as these things so often go, the judge was acquitted, and the town ended up turning on Rebecca and Isaac even more. They were being mocked in the streets and in the local papers, and they were eventually just driven out of town. And we would never even have heard of this without this journal. Exactly. Because so many people are often like, well, this is what happened back then. Like, women were treated poorly. Women were, like, hard R raped, like, this, that, and the other. And it's like, where's the proof, though? And it's like, this is the proof. Yeah. And it's also frustrating because, like, she had been worried. We know that she'd been worried about this and she confided in Martha about this. Well, that still fucking happens. Yeah. It's so frustrating. Like yeah. women will still be like, I've been being stalked for mm-hmm. weeks online, in person, mm-hmm. etc., and nothing comes of it. Nothing. Along with this horrific case, Martha also recorded another crime that shocked the town, the Purrington family murders. On the evening of July 8th, 1806, James Purrington sharpened his axe. After his wife and children went to bed, he stayed up late reading the Bible, and then in the middle of the night, he began killing his family before taking a straight razor to his own throat. Murder-suicide yeah. in colonial mm-hmm. New England. Mm-hmm. And this is a family annihilator, like, because he had been having financial troubles. Um, out of the eight children and two parents, eight children, two parents, only their teenage son, James Jr., survived because he had just enough time to run out of the house and get help. And I'm sure he was not well Mm-mm. after this. Martha Ballard recorded the scene in her diary. Around 3 a.m., she wrote, neighbors banged on her door and brought us the horrible tidings that Captain Purrington had murdered all his family except his son, James. The next day, Martha went to the house to survey the grisly scene and recorded it all. She and her family ended up adopting the sole surviving child into their family since he was now an orphan. And although he was dead, the town still charged James Sr. with murder, although the town could never quite decide on a motive. Martha did not have to testify in this trial because it was pretty clear what happened. Um, But she did participate in other legal proceedings, mainly paternity cases. So because... Young, unwed mothers have existed forever. (laughs) Midwives were often asked to pressure them into naming the father of their child by asking them in the throes of labor. Little Pearl. (laughs) (laughs) For 13 of the 20 out-of-wedlock births Martha um, performed, she said she had taken testimony of the father in accordance with the law. So 13 out of 20, she did get the name of the father. Um, and apparently this wasn't done to shame the mothers. It was done to hold the men financially responsible for their children. Mm. Because from my understanding, the town would kind of provide for the child if their fa- the father wasn't named. And I do like the idea of men being held more accountable for their actions, but I also don't love asking a woman who the father is in the middle of labor. It's like under, that's like interrogation under duress. Yes. Which I feel like is not fine. Yeah. But also like, I think women were scared of these men. Oh, they were totally scared. Because like, I mean, they might be afraid if they're going to be harmed if the outing of the father comes out, like maybe he's a married man. 
Maybe he's related to you. Maybe you were attacked. Like there are maybe so... he's the town minister. Yeah, and whatever it was, whatever like, it is, if he's in power, mm-hmm. it could be terrifying. It could be so, or it's someone you love and he's a person of color and you're not allowed to be with him. Yeah. There's so much that could be problematic. So much going on with this. So it's like I, this part. I don't know how I. I don't know how I feel about it. Because, yeah, that's hard. Yeah. It's like, I want these men to be held accountable, but also it could be dangerous for the woman. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so even though Martha... Again, still true. Right, yeah. <laughs> so even though Martha talks a lot about what goes on in her community, she also discusses her personal family struggles. She had family members pass away. Her son was arrested for fraud, mm. and her husband was sent to debtor's prison. But through it all, she kept recording and delivering babies and helping people any way she could. The last birth that Martha attended was on April 26, 1812. And even though she attended more than 800 births in an era of very high infant and maternal mortality, according to her records, she only lost five mothers and 20 babies. Wow. That's like, I mean, it's Those terrible, are, but pretty that's pretty good odds. For pretty good numbers. Births. Yeah. Martha passed away on June 9, 1812, at the age of 77. After her death, the diary was kept by her daughter, Dolly Lombard. The diary then was passed on to Dolly's daughters, Sarah and Hannah, after Dolly's death in 1861. Sarah and Hannah then gifted the diary to Martha's great-great-granddaughter, Martha Hobart, as a graduation gift when Mary became one of the first female U.S. physicians to graduate from the New York Infirmary for Women and Children oh. in 1884. <laughs> Stop! That breaks Isn't me. Isn't that the best? I just got <laughs> chills. That's so beautiful. Oh. Uh, then in 1930, Mary donated the diary to the Main State Library in Augusta. The Main State Library promised her a transcript of the diary, but the promise was never fulfilled. But eventually it was included in a history of Maine, and later Robert R. McCausland and Cynthia McElman McCausland spent 10 years producing a verbatim transcript on the diary. But for years it kind of went unnoticed. Some historians would use it as a reference point, you know, to get an idea of what life was like, or maybe even just to check the weather on a certain day. But people thought it was boring ordinary and repetitive so it kind of stayed in research limbo for years however historian laurel thatcher ulrich saw potential in the diary realizing how rare martha's firsthand account was after researching a previous book on women in early new england (laughs) after eight years of research ulrich produced a midwife's tale the life of martha ballard based on her diary 1785 to 1812 each chapter in a midwife's tale represents one aspect of the life of a woman in the late 18th century. The overriding theme is the nature of women's work in the context of and community. Um, Ulrich stated that when I finally was able to connect Martha's work to her world, I could begin to create stories. She highlights 10 key entries from Martha's diary and places these entries in a historical context, elevating a seemingly ordinary woman's life into a key figure of Kennebec. The book received a positive critical response and was praised for its insight into the lives of 18th century women and life in early New England. And in 1991, A Midwife's Tale received the Pulitzer Prize, as well as many, many, many other awards. And then in 1997, PBS aired a documentary called A Midwife's Tale on the program The American Experience. Overall, 
What we have learned from Martha Ballard is that even though she didn't sign the Declaration of Independence or fight in the Revolutionary War, she was a regular person who mattered to her family and her community. And her life as a regular woman in history is still significant. Ugh. I love that. <laughs> I love her so much. Anytime, um, to toot my own horn, <laughs> any, anytime we read an article at school where it says, you know, the population or something, I have my kids circle it. And I'm like, that's the people we're reading about. It's like, yeah. I know we're reading about like the famous people in history, but those are the people that built it yeah. because they're the thousands and thousands of unnamed people. And we're just so lucky to have Martha's story. Exactly. Because I'm sure other women did keep similar diaries, but like whose family cared to keep them? Right. You know, unless again, unless they're a George Washington, right. it's like, why would you keep it? It's like, it's just the weather and the date or and the it's like, gossip. you like, know, maybe you keep your moms and your grandmoms, but two generations later, right. You throw it away, you move, it gets lost. Yeah. This is a critical time in American history. She's existing between the revolutionary war and dies at the precipice of the war of 1812. Yeah. Like, we're not stable in this country. No. Yeah. <gasps> All right. Well, let's talk about these two ladies in a little segment we like to call Just the Two of Us. Speaking of war, I love that we're at two major wars. Huge <laughs> wars in American history. And both of our episodes were entirely about women's work. Women's work in the time of war. Yes. I think that that is so fascinating. It's fascinating because these are still considered women's jobs. Mm -hmm. Midwifery doula teacher uh -huh. child deliverer even pediatrician right like if you yeah. go the doctor route mm -hmm. this is women's work this is the thing that women are in charge of your babies yeah <laughs> like literal we're not only growing them we're rearing them up yeah exactly and i love that both of these women knew that their work was focused on kids and like probably like fellow mothers you know so I feel like Susan was very much like, no, this has to be a school for all because like all kids matter. All mothers matter. Mm -hmm. Like all other mothers, like especially poor mothers need a break. Like yeah. if they can get these kids out of the house a little bit earlier and get them a little more functioning, like that would be amazing and like not have them in the factories. And like, even if the moms don't necessarily need a break, what if when they're at home, they need like they're busy doing, you know, if they were right. third shift, they're mm -hmm. busy doing stuff. Somebody can cultivate that mind in the meantime. Yeah, exactly. Tag team. Yeah. Why can't we tag team? And I feel like Martha had the same thing about childbirth. She goes, everybody deserves a safe childbirth, yeah. you know? And like, I'm a person that knows what I'm doing. So like, I don't care what religion you are. I don't care how rich or poor you are, what your color is. She goes, I'm going to help you deliver your baby in the best way possible. Well, they're both into public service. They're saying this exactly. is a this is a public sector position. Mm -hmm. Everybody needs to be educated. Mm -hmm. Everybody's going to have babies. Everybody needs health care. Mm -hmm. Like these are things that people need. Why are they dominated by how much money you have? It's so upsetting. It's, ridiculous. it's upsetting. Um, and I also like that we're seeing two sides of the same coin, though. You know, like I feel like Susan is bringing all of these new ideas and she's like, let's do this new thing from Germany and new ideas can kind of scare people. Oh yes. <laughs> but I feel like midwifery is very traditional. It's very like familial passed on kind of information. So, and, and that's the great thing about these two stories. I think you need both. Like I said about midwives and doulas and doctors, I think we need to find a way to integrate all of it because mm -hmm. of course we need to be doing 
new medical research on how to make birth safer. But I also think that some of the more traditional things can be very, very useful in like helping women have better births. Agree. And I think both these women came from very different socioeconomic statuses. Yeah. And I think that that's important. I think we needed somebody with all the privilege in the world Mm -hmm. to say, I care about Mm -hmm. these kids and I have the money to make it happen. And we needed a middle class person to be like, I can step in and do this when nobody else is willing to serve you as a human. Mm -hmm. I think they Mm -hmm. both took their background and used it to the best of their ability. Yeah, I totally agree. Because like really like on a personal level, you're right. They were so different. I mean, Martha stayed in New England her entire life. Never left even like the general area. (laughs) Which is true of most people. Which is true. Most people die five miles from where they're born. Yeah. And you have Susan, who has literally traveled the world. And what I, and, you, and then you have Martha, who has like a ton of kids, and Susan, who has not had any kids. And I love that they both, again, no matter how much money they had, no matter their family or personal situation, they both came to the same general conclusion that community is important, children are important, women are important. Mm-hmm. Like, our, our female-based local economy is important enough for me to record it. Mm-hmm. And Susan is saying, our kids' brains are so important that I want to take as much care as possible and, like, train other people. That's also another thing, training the next generation. Sure. Because you know that Martha is not just Doing keeping this. all this information no. to herself. This is not private. No. And what I love, too, is I also learned about midwifery is that you attended all the births in your local community mm-hmm. and while you're having kids as well. And then Martha was done having kids. And then two years after that started her midwifery business because mm-hmm. she was like, all right, I'm ready to take the reins now and like start being the midwife. Mm-hmm. And I do kind of love that. Like everybody needs that training period. Everybody needs to student teach. You got to learn. You have to learn. You got to watch. Yes. And uh, of course, it's very important to go into a classroom setting and learn the theory. But I also think that it's important to get into the nitty gritty of it and like get into a classroom because I think a lot of teachers, I don't know about this, but like I would assume there are some people, I actually knew one personally, who was like, I'm going to be a great teacher. I love kids. First day of class was like, wow, I hate this. Gave it a year and was like, I'm done. I was not built for this. And I think that's the importance of getting into the work, doing your student teaching, attending some births. Maybe you attend some births and you're like, I want nothing to do with this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And then you're not a part of that in your community. And like, that's OK, because you can make the fucking candlesticks. Right. Like, <laughs> I think, too, that if we zoom this out and we look at present day, these are still professions that are not taken seriously. Ugh, Midwifery. Totally preschool kindergarten teaching it's kind of scoffed at Mm -hmm. like which is very disrespectful because they are very long-lasting industries Mm -hmm. but I think a lot of female work is scoffed at I totally agree but these Mm -hmm. two specifically because they are scientific fields Mm -hmm. I think are are not given the credit they're due Mm -hmm. it's very sad like it makes me sad that people work so hard on these things and they're just almost ignored as fields yeah All right. What a great (laughs) couple of ladies. I loved it too. All right. Who would you like to toast this evening? My toast today is to people who respect children as much Mm. as they respect adults because Mm. children are just like 
in grown-up training. Yeah. And um, I think that what we put into their minds comes out of them when they're grown-ups. Mm-hmm. And if we can, like, put them in good grown-up training, then we'll do so much better as a society. Yeah. So, that. cheers. What do you have? I'm going to toast the regular people who just do as much good as they can in their communities that and and their communities that probably let them down a lot i think that there is a part of martha that was so sad that her community would allow this rape to happen Mm. her community this horrible murder happened and like i think that she was probably really let down by people but she never stopped helping them and she never stopped being an active part and and I think that's a lot of regular people's stories. So agree. Cheers. cheers. <laughs> that's beautiful. All right. Now, what are you enjoying in pop culture this week? So Britney Spears' memoir came out this week. So have you read it? I am. I have one hour left on Audible. Is it crazy? It's really good, actually. Hmm. So when I started reading, I can't wait for you to listen to it. It's okay. on there. It's available. Okay. Um, I started listening to it, and the first couple chapters, I was like. This kind of sounds like the memoir that she thinks people wanted her to write Uh and not like the memoir she should have written. Yeah. And as the chapters get farther and farther on, I am blown away by her. It's like, I know what the paparazzi did. Yeah. I know what the paparazzi made me think. I know it. I'm a logical human. Uh-huh. But hearing her say it so blatantly is very nice. Uh-huh. Like to speak about another woman in history or group of women in history from that era yeah. who were treated like shit by the media. Yeah. Like, I mean, she was sat down by Diane Sawyer, Matt Lauer, other famous interviewers and asked about the size of her breasts mm-hmm. and why she cheated on Justin Timberlake and like all these very personal things when you are a 16 to 20 year old young yeah. woman in and her family situation and it's like i think it's actually very nicely done in chronological order it gives her her say without giving too much personal detail i think she kept her anonymity as best she could yeah. so far i still have an hour left we'll see All but right. i'm just i'm happy it's out i'm happy she has gotten to say her due uh-huh. especially with her most recent divorce and like yeah. everything that's happening, I think that this is an important step in her healing that I think is what she needs. I think she heal. definitely needs it because she is off the rails. From- she is knife dancing on Instagram. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I also, I am so curious about what the process was like because I'm sure she did not type this. Like, I'm sure she had like a ghostwriter helping sure. her. Sure. I think that like she someone probably, helping her. I'm like, sure she did interviews and uh-huh. they like helped her outline it and then typed yeah. it out and then she read it and approved or disapproved. Like most yeah, celebrity I'm sure memoirs. She, yeah, exactly. Like most, I'm not saying right. this is only her doing Yeah, this. yeah, yeah. Like, most celebrities will do something like that because, but I will say that it's not super artsy. So hmm. it does feel like it's from a girl from Louisiana. Yeah. Uh, does she like, read it? She reads the prologue and Michelle Williams does the rest. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Um, All right. And I am glad of that. <laughs> I was like, I don't know if I could listen to like eight hours of her talking. Yeah. I was like, Brittany, <laughs> this is absurd. Yeah. <laughs> her accent, I love, 
but in small doses. Okay. Yeah. What are you into right now? Uh, I'm going to promote the movie Sleepy Hollow starring Johnny, Johnny Depp, Depp and Christina Ricci. <laughs> sure. So fiance and I were trying to find like a Halloweeny movie that we hadn't watched yet. And I had never seen that. And because I, I don't really love horror movies. So we're in like a weird spot. We're like, Casey doesn't really want to watch like kid movies all the time, which I told that we've seen a hundred times, but I don't really want to watch new horror movies. So we're kind of in a weird middle ground. I hate horror movies. I hate them. Sleepy Hollow, not a horror movie, but it is suspenseful. It's really good. It's a really fun riff on like the original Sleepy Hollow tale. Uh, it's got great, a great cast. It's got a lot of people from the Harry Potter series. <laughs> All the famous Brits. Um, yeah. I mean, like Professor, Dum- Professor Dumbledore is in it. Um, what's it called? Mr. Dursley. Vernon Dursley's in it. Like, just like a lot of weird people. So it is a really fun, spooky movie that I just like, I really enjoyed it. And I really was, I didn't know what the outcome was going to be for most of the movie, which I also like. I was like, what the fuck is going on? I had my theories, but you can never really pinpoint it. So anyways, very good. Sleepy Hollow. (laughs) Perfect. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you guys for listening. I hope you're having a great start to your November. And if you would like to hang out with us a little bit more, you can join us on Patreon for as little as a dollar a month. You can get to know us a little bit better. You can fund the cocktail budget, which is obviously ever growing. (laughs) But if you don't want to do that, you can also rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. That would be the absolute best. Um, And if you do, we'll give you a shout out on the show. So thank you again. We love you. And never forget that well-behaved women think child rearing is for Instagram. Yeah. And they rarely make history. Goodbye. listening to her story on the rocks we are independently produced by 1986 entertainment and proudly recorded in baltimore maryland if there's a woman in history you would like us to cover you can email us at herstoryontherocks at gmail.com you can also message us on twitter or instagram we post all of our cocktail recipes on tuesdays so that you can go get all the supplies you need and drink along with us see you next week bye